Hello, beautiful humans. Welcome to Role Models, Juicy Conversations with Beautiful Humans. I'm Jennifer Norman, founder of the Human Beauty Movement and your host. My guest today is Joe Templin. Joe is a human Kaizen expert and author. He has more degrees than a thermometer and is an ultra marathoner, an unrepentant geek, a special needs single dad, and a martial artist, basically a human Swiss army knife. His book, Everyday Excellence, was the Kindle number one new release in professional development. I'm so happy to introduce him to you. So welcome, Joe. Jennifer, glad to be here. You know, I don't know why I am on a podcast about beautiful humans, because I got the face made for radio. <laughs> that is so not true. Of course, we always say beauty is from within, but I think everybody is beautiful. And the more unique, the better. That's what I say. I think that there's always something really magical about different faces. So I think that's amusing. But at any rate, please share something about yourself. Share anything about yourself that you think that we would like to know. What's your background and how did you become that beautiful human that you are today? So I had two awesome parents, encouraged education. My mom, the nun, who I tell jokes about, yes, my mom was a nun and then had six kids. So that's an entirely different, interesting story. And my dad was the first person in his family to go to college, was Army ROTC, got commissioned, and then three months later was the Bay of Pigs. So here we go thinking that the world's going to end, and that's how he started his military career. He got out during Vietnam and founded his consulting firm. So here I have these two very strong influences that always actually encouraged us to respect authority, but not blatantly accept it. And to always desire to learn and better ourselves. And so that is the foundation from which my entire life literally is built off of. Yeah, you pretty much had a life filled with discipline and order, didn't you? It was discipline and order, but I needed it because I'm ADHD. And back in the 70s, we didn't diagnose people with that. We just said that they were high energy. But that gave me the overall structure to be able to explore within and be able to pursue what interested me. So whether it was physics, psychology, poetry, philosophy, martial arts, music. My parents always encouraged me to explore and learn everything that I could. And it is, I think, that combination of having reinforcement and discipline, but also freedom that creates a dichotomy that allows for growth. Yeah. And you said that you had two awesome parents. And so that's wonderful that it seems like you had such a good relationship with them and that they were very encouraging of you pursuing all of these different interests. Is that right? Yes. I mean, my mom bought us bug jugs when we were kids. My mom was the youngest of seven kids. She grew up on a farm. So she also taught us to shoot. She taught me how to hotwire a car. She taught me how to distill (laughs) alcohol. That's very handy as a nun to be able to hotwire a car and distill alcohol. Yeah, you know, so these are just like some of these random facts and tools that in other parts of my life later on, whether it was in college or when I was an intel officer, came into play. But it was just this insatiable desire to learn. I think I was like eight years old when I told my mom I wanted to learn everything there was to learn. And she told me, well, better get to work. And the encyclopedias are over there. She also, something that infuriated me when I was a kid, if I couldn't spell something or know what it meant, she'd tell me, go look it up. I'm like, if I could spell it, I would be able to look it up. And so she didn't like that. But so there was no Google back then. <laughs> exactly. And so the modern equivalent of that is GTS, Google that stuff. So that's what I tell my kids all the time. But another thing my mom taught me when I was reading early on was always have index cards. Because if you don't know what something means, you write it down and then you can go look it up later or you can take notes. And so that was something that in college, my fraternity encouraged. And even to this day, I always have either my phone on me to take notes or if I'm actually wearing a suit like today, I can have index cards in the pocket. But this is literally how I run the complexity of my life is just writing down the four or five most important things that I need to do for the day. Mm-hmm. cross them off as I get through them. And then I, David Letterman, throw in the garbage. I already <laughs> threw out today. So. Hopefully you're third in the recycling. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll just say that you do. <laughs> Fantastic. So that is amazing that, you know, it, it seems like you were just curious. You had all of this curiosity and you were willing to go through all of the details and the iterations and the permutations to find out everything that you wanted to know about any subject at all. And, you know, this is one thing that I encourage people who are in high school and college and just afterwards is now's the time to figure out who you are. College is the greatest, you know, smorgasbord of all time. I mean, you can try 500 different types of tacos. You can try a half dozen different martial arts. You can taste every food that exists on the planet. You can study different philosophies. You can audit classes that are completely outside your major that might be of interest. And so you can learn and develop. And an example that I use of why this is important was there was this one guy who actually dropped out of college, but he hung around, he took all, he like would attend different classes that interested him. And he went and took a calligraphy class. Mm-hmm. That guy was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And because of that class, we ended up having all the cool fonts mm-hmm. on the Macintosh and eventually all the other computer systems. So as Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. It's only looking back that you can make some sort of story and figure it out. So that is one of the things that I encourage your listeners is I have teenage boys, as you mentioned. And so the analogy I use is everything in life's a giant video. We have this massive quest that we're on. We all want to get to the castle, beat the boss, you know, save the princess, get the treasure and all that. And to do that though, it's not necessarily a linear path. You have to take all these side quests, The side quest might be going into the tavern and talking to the weird old man, which is typically me, you know, to get some information. It might be going into the inn and just resting. That's taking a couple of days of vacation to recharge your body. It might be you need to get some more gold. So you take a side gig or you work for a company for a few years to get resources and relationships that are going to come into play when you go back to your main quest, whatever that is. So early on, your 20s and 30s is figuring out what that quest really is and Mm -hmm. starting to build the mindsets and skill sets to ultimately achieve it. Yeah, for sure. I love that analogy. And I often have used that myself is that, you know, life is meant to be fun. So think of it as a game. And so thinking of it as a video game is highly appropriate, especially in this day and age where people are wondering if we're living in the matrix or not anyway. (laughs) If we were living in the matrix, I want to plug on in and be able to go, I know Kung Fu. Take the blue pill. Don't take the red pill. <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> well, tell us then, because you, you know, you got multiple degrees, as you had mentioned. Can you share some of the things that you had pursued as far as your education and whatnot before you went into the military? So I actually never went into the military because I was severely asthmatic as a kid. In fact, oh, my God. asthma, I was legally dead at 10. I got better, obviously. But in the early 90s, there was no exemption for asthma at that point. Those came later on. So even though I was competing for a world championship in Taekwondo, I still was not allowed to enter the military. So I worked for DARPA. I did research in a lab. I worked as an intel officer. I I taught individuals in the military. So I taught self-defense to them. Mm -hmm. Even though I technically wasn't allowed to be one of them, I taught them. So Mm -hmm. this is one way as Muhammad Ali says service is the rent that you pay for your room here on earth. This is one of the ways that I was able to serve and help other individuals, which is something that I inherited from my parents in a lot of ways. As my mm-hmm. mom always said, if you're having a bad day, go help somebody else out. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that I did. But I started college at 13 because my parents said 12 was too young to start college. And some of my friends from that point are still some of my closest friends on the earth. Some of these people are really, really smart. So I was at Hopkins, and then I ended up going to Rensselaer Polytechnic, RPI, oldest engineering school in the English-speaking world, majored in applied physics and communications and minored in astronomy and literature and a whole bunch of other things. And I was writing that entire time. So writing has been a component of who I am for 35 plus years, same way that martial arts has been a component of who I am for that long. Finished that up, started my MBA, working on my degree in engineering physics, finished all that stuff up, went into the professional world doing financial planning. I passed the CFP exam. In fact, at this point, I've written thousands of review questions for it. 
got multiple other degrees in finance, like my chartered advisor of philanthropy, chartered financial consultant, ended up picking up my master's in executive counseling. And really the four P's are there to help explain the world, in my opinion. Four P's are physics, philosophy, psychology, and poetry. And those four different mindsets essentially exist to try and answer the same set of questions, but from completely different perspectives. And so one of the things that I do actually is I shift between the different mindsets on a regular basis and try and utilize at least multiple of them every single day. Because if you can actually look at a situation from two different perspectives simultaneously, you generally get a better picture of what's going on, same way that we have two eyes to give us depth perception. Mm. Can you give an example of maybe a problem that you would tackle from one way from maybe a philosopher's perspective versus a physics perspective? So for example, if I'm working with a business owner Mm -hmm. and they are trying to do something with their business, maybe they're trying to land a new client, maybe they're trying to get funding, maybe they're trying to figure out what area to move into for a new product line or something like that. We talk about it both from the point of view of physics, which is hardcore mathematical problem solving, modeling and things like that. But then like this actually happened this morning when I was talking with somebody that I advised. I talked to him from the philosophy point of view of if you do X, how are you going to feel? If you do Y, how are you going to feel? which path is the path of integrity for you. Mm -hmm. So we looked at it from a pure financial, which is more mathematical and thus physics point of view, but we also explored it from that philosophy point Mm -hmm. of view. He's like, damn you, Templin, you make me ask tough questions. That's awesome. I wonder what a poetic way of (laughs) looking at that problem would have been. (laughs) You know, the art of the poet is to not say everything, is the old (laughs) saying. So I would just like leave the pregnant pause there and make him very uncomfortable as he contemplates it in a lot of ways. (laughs) But as Robin Williams said in Dead Poet Society, poetry is there to woo women. So there's all poetry. (laughs) That's that's not untrue. Well, it's interesting because I agree with you. I think, you know, looking at a problem, number one, you can't do it. You can't find a solution being in the mindset of the problem. And so getting out of that zone and getting into a different zone, whatever that zone is, is number one, very helpful. But then also channeling and getting into these different mindsets allows you the liberty of just creative exploration in order to get to different avenues and things that you hadn't necessarily or would not have necessarily thought of if you were just thinking very linearly to your points like the physics or the mathematical route. And a lot of people rely on that, don't they? Just like the physics, the math of the the numbers. People get almost pigeonholed or, you know, Mm -hmm. biased in some ways. And every situation is like life or an individual themselves. Mm -hmm. We're like a diamond. There's multiple different facets. And so if we look from different perspectives, we can see different things, different aspects, different facets, and it increases our understanding. And in many situations, it can improve our appreciation of the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Seeing things from all different angles, and then you find something uncovered, just like I see your beauty and you say you have a face for radio. See, (laughs) you know what? I got a sense of humor. So that's a great thing. If you can't laugh at yourself, you know, you're. I can. Yeah. So tell me about physical aspects of your aspirations, the martial arts and doing marathons and things like that. How did you get involved with just going for all of these, you know, more interesting and determined types of physical activities? As I say, I'm not naturally talented in any way, shape or form. As I said, I was severely asthmatic. I was legally dead when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my starting point in terms of physical capability is well below basically anybody else's. However, you know, one of the things about dying and coming back is that you don't screw around anymore. You know, as my friends joke, I burn the candle at both ends and in the middle with a flamethrower. And so 
I use all 86,400 seconds every single day. In fact, I try and multitask so I can squeeze in extra ones because it's not like you can put them aside and draw on them tomorrow or next week. You have to use them up that particular day. Mm -hmm. So my martial arts started because there was a bunch of kids on the bus harassing my kid sister. So my mom signed my sisters up for Taekwondo. And then I started a couple of weeks later. And for some reason, it just fit with me. With my ADHD, the hyper-focus, that was something that for some reason I could hyper-focus on. And being Irish, I'm sort of thick-headed in a lot of ways. And so growing up on the farm, I had the natural farm boy work ethic. And this just naturally appealed to me. So Mm -hmm. I found ways to multitask. So like I would literally stretch my legs out in the stretch machine and sit there and do my Latin homework while watching TV and stuff like that. And so I just really got into it. And so I got to the point where every single morning I would get up and I would train. And 35 plus years later, every single morning, I still get up and I train every single day. I still throw the basic punches that I learned decades ago, a hundred plus times each hand every morning. At this point, I've thrown over 10 million punches. I don't even need to think about them. And I'm still faster than people half my age because I refuse to give in and acknowledge that leveling up chronologically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just continue to focus on that. From there, I drifted into playing volleyball, played junior Olympic. I played in college. I actually lettered in college in something completely different. I was mascot. So yes, I was a cheerleader on top of everything else. I started running to supplement my other sports. And I swore to myself, okay, I'm going to do a marathon by the time I turn 30 or else I'm never going to do one. I did my first one about a month beforehand. Then I did another marathon about a year later. I'm like, this sucks. I hate running. I'm never going to do another marathon again because it takes too much sacrifice in terms of the time. I'm tired. I'm always hungry, always hungry. You know, the recovery and all that. So I put aside the long, long distance running and was running shorter distances. But then my friends from high school about seven years ago called me and like, hey, we got something crazy that, you know, you might be interested in. So I started doing Ragnars, which are approximately 200 mile team relay races where you get two vans of six people each. And the first van starts, somebody runs and then everybody rides in the van. And then you switch runners and switch runners. And so you go through all six people. Then you go and you rest or you sleep on the floor of a gym or maybe in the van while the other vans are cycling through. Then the first van runs again, then the second one, then the first, then the second one. And you run three legs and you run anywhere from 15 to 20-ish miles. And I got into doing that and I did about 20 of those. But then my one running team during COVID, when all the races were canceled, were like, okay, we need to do something crazy so we don't go insane. So we started doing like virtual Ragnars and all this. And then we decided, hey, let's do a backyard ultra. So every hour you'd run one, two or three miles. And the next hour you do it again, next hour you do it again. So I committed to the three miles. And unfortunately they started at nine. I thought we started at 5 a.m. So I had a four hour head start. So I had 12 miles more than they did. Then by mid afternoon, I'm at like, you know, 30, 35 miles. I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just stretch this out and do a double marathon? Because from a mathematics point of view, two negatives make a positive. So if I did two marathons, technically I didn't do a single marathon and it was okay. Yes, I know. Bizarre logic. And when you're like 40 miles into a run, your mind starts saying weird things. So Mm -hmm. that was my first ultra marathon. And one of the big things I learned during that, I was about 40 miles into it. I was completely physically exhausted. I was starting to go a little weird mentally, which happens deep into the long run, my emotional reserves were almost tapped out. And one of my friends called me and she was going through major crisis, emotional crisis. And so I shifted all my focus onto her while I was still shuffling along because I wasn't really running at that point. And I spent the next two hours trying to talk her off the ledge and get her through her emotional things. And that's how I ended up getting through the last part of the first ultra marathon was by focusing on somebody else as opposed to myself and my pain. Mm. And that's how I was able to complete it. Mm. And afterwards, as I'm you know sitting there having a beer in the shower, because shower beer is the best thing in the world, especially after 52 miles. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, with a little more training, I could actually do this better. And so six months later, I actually started earlier, had better nutrition. I trained a little bit better and I ended up doing hundred kilometers. So 10 miles more in four hours less. Wow. 
So right now I'm training for a 72 mile one in November. Oh my goodness. That is a lot on the body. Yeah. My physiotherapist like gets mad at me. She puts me back together again and she's like, okay, you know, you're limited today. You can only do like seven miles today. Like really? Come on. Mm. Well, that is extraordinary because it just seems like, you know, every time that you cross off something on your list, you want to like best yourself. You want to do a little bit more. Yep. And I don't know if it's something that, you know, consciously do, but it's kind of like, well, if I've done that, then I need to do this next logical step. I need to do this next logical step. And and you don't really think about the, like it as a goal into itself, perhaps it's just like, yeah, let's just do it. And, and you that, don't really that's very much a martial arts or runner sort of mentality, you know, train in the martial arts and you get one belt, right? You're training for the next one. You fa- you compete in one tournament, your next morning, you're training again because it's, there's no finish line for those races. Mm-hmm. It's the constant desire to improve, which is one of the concepts behind everyday excellence is if you can get just a little bit better every day, what can you become over time? Where can we go? Mm-hmm. And so it's that concept. Some of my friends joke addicted to, you know, competition and challenge, and there might be some truth in that, but it is just the continuous chance to see what else we can accomplish. Mm. So that's the major theme of the book is that, you know, the everyday excellence is on just like the, the constant bits of improvement that you can do no matter what they are in your life. Right. And it, and it's little things. Every single day we make somewhere around 10,000 micro decisions and a lot of them are routine. If we can make just a couple of better micro choices per day, then the arrow for that day is pointing up instead of pointing down. And as Colossus tells Deadpool in the movie, I'm a big comic book nerd, by the way. Four or five choices, the difference between being a hero or a villain. Now, for those of us without superpowers, it's those daily tiny things, four or five better choices. You know, do I eat the healthy snack or do I have the donut? I love donuts. So, you know, that's a difficult one for me. But you can also set up your environment to default to better choices. So, for example, if you've got a problem that you drink too much soda, okay, don't have soda in the house. So you're stuck with water, tea, coffee, you know, a better option. If you have problem that you keep going on your phone to places that you shouldn't go, whether it's game that wastes your time or if you dating app on there that you really shouldn't have, delete it. Then you're not tempted. You don't even have to expend any energy to have discipline the choice just completely disappears. And this is one of the things that Thaler ended up winning the Nobel Prize in economics for is decision-making theory, concept of nudge, of making it so that it's easier to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then you have more mental bandwidth for the more important things so you can accomplish more. But then your routines, which make up 75 plus percent of our day, are better and move you in the right direction. That's why you should have your running shoes next to the bed and your, your workout clothes. So you roll out of bed and you, you trip over them. And so you put them on instead of having to go and get them out of the drawer or the closet and have that extra couple of steps, which make it so that you're less likely to make the good choice. Yeah. And that's the basis between other great books like Atomic Habits and even Love Atomic Habits. Yeah. Thrive, Ariana Huffington. They're very much into like the micro steps is like, what are those very easily achievable, like little tiny things that you can do to move the needle every single day to make those, those improvements that can have over time, a cumulative and dramatic effect on your life. James Clear's concept of habit stacking is something that I actually utilized in writing the book. And I still have a habit stack. I get up in the morning, I grab my half cup of coffee because it's ready to go. And I turn on the coffee pot, which I prepped the night before. I sit down, I brain dump anything that was in my brain. So I just write for a couple of minutes. Then I read a couple of different things. Right now it's uh, The Daily Laws by Robert Greene. Last year it was Daily Stoic. I read my copy of the book. I post a couple of quick things. And then I get up and I go work out. I go run for 20 minutes, Taekwondo, whatever. And then I sit down and I write again because those workouts, my body was getting fully actualized for the day. 
my mind was processing the stuff that I had just read. And typically I'm listening to podcasts or audiobooks or whatever while I'm working out. So I now have all this stuff that jumbled around there while I was working out and ready to then write for another 20, 30 minutes. And so I start that day at 4.15 in the morning. So by 5.30, I've already accomplished enough to set up my day that if my day ended right there, it would have been pretty productive already. Mm-hmm. And this is before anybody else is there to help mess it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing with us your diagnosis, because I think that when people think about ADHD, they think about things that might be distractions. And they think like, oh, if I'm on a path and then all of a sudden something else happens, then it kind of blows up the day and they and they get off track. But oh. in your being able to be disciplined and recognizing your ADHD and taking that to a place where you're able to have it stack, you're able to really create functionality and all of these things that you love to do and compress the time in which you're doing it because you're not messing around and doing all of these things that are wait, quote unquote, wasting time, it becomes extremely productive and useful for you. I also use a lot of techniques that I've learned over time. So for example, I completely turn off the phone. Mm-hmm. So right now my phone can't even ring to disturb us because it's turned off completely. Mm-hmm. You know what? The world's not going to end in the hour conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. If it does, so be it. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it's not going to be fatal during that time. If I'm going to work on a task, but whether it's writing or taking care of some marketing things, I'll set a timer for 15 to 25 minutes. It's called the Pomodoro method and just hammer away on it. If I'm writing and I don't need internet to research stuff, I literally turn the internet off or I'll go into a different room and completely focus. So I'll be in a bare room. So there's nothing there to distract me. Mm-hmm. Now, am I going to try and do that for three hours? No, because I know my limitations, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that you learn over time. But any one of us can do things for 10, 15 minutes. You just blot all out and you hammer away. Mm. Then you get up and you do something else. And by cycling that way, going from task to task to task, you can actually accomplish a lot of different things. Now, there, there's something called switching friction. You know, the, tri- the cost of mentally shifting gears from X to Y but I shift very quickly because of the ADHD. So I can go do, 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 and just go through serial tasks quickly. And then, you know, I do multitask like a madman. So Mm -hmm. if I'm making dinner, I'm listening to a podcast, also supervising the kids getting their homework done. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm working out, I'm listening to something and I stop every, you know, 10 minutes while I'm running to take a note or write something down just because my mind's still processing. Mm -hmm. I compose entire poems and the basis of multiple articles while out on a five mile run all the time. Mm -hmm. So then I just give myself a voice memo or whatever and keep going. And so capturing like that allows us to then be able to come back around and process it as appropriate. So people should keep like a pad by their bed. You wake up, you have an idea, you just write it down and you roll back over and go to sleep. Mm -hmm. It's there in the morning and it's not lost in the ether so that you can move on forward. So these are strategies that I have learned over time. And one of the things that I found, because as we talked about previously, I've got two special needs kids, one's Asperger's, one's autistic, is reaching out to other members of the autism community to find strategies that they have found have worked with their kids. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I've actually done to myself is something I learned for using with my son. If he's having a really bad day, like he just got up on the wrong side of bed, things are not going right. I'm like, buddy, we're set. We're hitting the reset button. Literally hit the button. I bring him back up into his room. We take his glasses off. We put him on the nightstand. I tuck him in. I swaddle him tight like you do a baby because a lot of autistic kids like that pressure. I mean, my kid still wears a mask because he enjoys it. So you just turn it up. I turn out the light. I'm like, all right, good night. Walk out. I come back in about five minutes later and I wake him up again as if it's a brand new day. Mm. And about 50 to 60% of the time, it works to allow him to completely reset. Mm. So why don't we as big people do that? You know what? If you're being a cranky SOB, turn out the lights, take a five minute power nap, Mm -hmm. reset your day like that. Mm -hmm. everybody around you will be happy that you did. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And I love the concept that you were just talking about of like making sure that the things that could potentially distract you or derail your day are not within your limitations. They're not within even your reach or your grasp. And so, you, you know, you're turning off the computer, you're turning off the internet, you're turning off your phone, you're making sure that those aren't even available to you. I kind of liken it to the idea or the concept of vampire energy. They say, you know, when you keep things plugged in, then they're still sapping energy. And so even like keeping a phone near you that could go off and that you might hear ring. I mean, your attention automatically goes to that if you don't necessarily just shut it down and remove that distraction from your vicinity. Oh. And yeah, and I think it's actually a pretty valuable tool that other people can probably employ pretty easily if they have the discipline to do it. <laughs> right. And so one of the things is that if you set up the environment, you actually remove the necessity of discipline. Mm -hmm. Because discipline means that I need to physically choose to do this. But mm -hmm. if that this other thing is not even an option, it's completely off the plate, off the table, you can't spend any energy on. So going back to Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every single day. He had different rises. He had the black turtleneck, he had the black jeans. And why? Because that way he expended no mental energy on it. So it's literally just grab and go. I have, I think, one or two shirts total, dress shirts that are not white dress shirts. Blue suits, black suits. Well, I now have a gray suit. You know, white shirts, ties with blue in them, ties with black in them, ties with gray in them. So it's literally, I can grab any of it and not even have to think and just go. Mm -hmm. And so that then frees up mental bandwidth. Every person has seven plus or minus two mental channels that we can utilize at any one point. And so like, if you have three kids, guess what? Typically your kids are taking up three of them unless you know they're off at school or whatever, they're off at camp. And so you can shut those down. Okay. We're worried about work. We're worried about our significant other. So it overwhelms us. So being able to literally lay out and have something else, else take those components. This is why financial advisors say, I'm going to be your family CFO. And they take the worry and the responsibility away for that. This is why you outsource in a lot of ways mentally, and it allows you to then have more capacity to focus on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So if you send the kids to their grandparents for a couple of days, you're able to be that much more productive because you don't have the worry of, What's this kid doing? Hey, it's too quiet in the house right now. They're up to something, you know? So it allows you to, as my son's Taekwondo master says, focus and finish. Mm -hmm. I love that concept, focus and finish. What about for the people who are just natural born worriers or they start to ruminate and think? I do have some friends who are also ADHD and they mm -hmm. you know, may be on the spectrum and their mind continues to play these mental gymnastics on them, even if something is not in the room or they don't necessarily have to worry about it. It's the it's almost like the, the complexity of choice. Even if they have right. two choices, they'll worry about making the wrong decision. And so they'll just contemplate that for the long period of time until, you know, it's like, what, what would you yeah. say? So there's a couple of things that we can do, and that's really anxiety getting into play in some ways. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is Nike says, just do it. So if you can't make the decision between two things and you've thought out and thought out, flip a coin heads, mm -hmm. you know, first one tails, second one, and as you flip it, you're going to find that you're rooting for one side. Mm -hmm. So the flipping of the coin is not the decision maker. The flipping of the coin forces you into revealing which decision you truly want. Mm. Okay. So heads, we do X, tails, we do Y. Come on heads. Okay. Boom. That's what I really want. That's what I need to do. Okay. So it's really almost like the exogenous event that forces you to make the decision. That's what flipping the coin is in some ways. Another thing is be like Star-Lord. Have 12% of a plan because the plan's going to change. As Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Anybody who's gone on a long road trip knows there's construction, there's detours, there's all this stuff. So have the preliminary part of a plan and just start going. Understanding that you're going to figure it out. Understand that, okay, if when I reach here, I'll, have, I'll figure out the next couple of steps from there. So instead of looking at this huge thing, I need to go from here to here. This is how I break down ultra marathons. You know, just even thinking of doing 100 kilometers is overwhelming. If I can do five kilometers, I can do a kilometer. I can go from here to that corner. That's not a big deal. I'll just go to that corner and I'll figure out where I'm going from there. And then another one, another one. And all of a sudden you realize that you've done 35 miles. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way 
to be able to get through it. Another thing for people who are really anxious is write it down because you're anxious because it's all rattling around your head. Well, I told you about writing down my couple of key things I need to accomplish. I write them down and then I don't worry as I knock them off the list. Like, okay, awesome, awesome. All right, all done in the bonus round. And then I can sit and think for a couple of minutes about what is the next group of things that I should do. And it makes sure that I don't get overwhelmed by any of it because instead of trying to focus on everything, which allows you to focus on nothing and just be completely overwhelmed, you focus on a couple of things, get them taken care of, and then you can reevaluate and focus on the next tier of things. Again, coming back to what his Taekwondo master said, focus and finish. For them, it's focusing on finishing, you know, doing this technique 10 times or, you know, finish on your 10 push-ups or what have you. In the business world where we're juggling all these different balls, it's focus on getting these couple of things done. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about anything else. Take care of those. Then reevaluate, move forward. And that's how you can make consistent, steady progress, even in a chaotic environment. Yeah. Now you had mentioned why take the hard path as opposed to the easy one. So I was hoping that you'd speak to that. Okay. And here's the thing. In every situation, we have a choice. We make a decision. And if you break it down, all decisions come into basically two critical paths. There is what is easy in the moment. Generally what feels good. I'm going to eat this donut instead of having the salad. I'm going to take the drag on this cigarette instead of not doing it. I'm going to play video games instead of studying for my test. I'm not going to have that difficult conversation with my crush. We're just going to you know, ignore this for now. And when you do what feels good in the moment to avoid the more difficult thing, what ends up happening is, yeah, you feel good, but it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound or you know, getting that quick fix you know, it makes you feel good in the moment, but it leads to something slightly worse and then something slightly worse. So if I continuously eat the donuts, guess what? I'm going to have diabetes and my pants aren't going to fit. I'm going to have trouble getting out of bed and all that. And nine out of 10 leading causes of death in the United States are lifestyle diseases from taking that easy choice that feels good in the moment. Okay. So instead of taking that easy choice, the other group of choices is the harder choice. From a chemistry point of view, there's higher activation energy. It takes more work. You know, that's going and getting off the couch and running five kilometers instead of saying they're eating Cheetos watching The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. It is cracking the book and studying so I get a better grade, so I get a better job, as opposed to sitting there and dorking around and having fun in the moment and not having a good career. It is having the difficult discussion with a significant other which means that you avoid the divorce because you're doing the hard work on your relationship. It is, you know, going for the run in the rain. I hate running in the rain and yet I do it on a regular basis. And when I'm getting out, ready to go on out, I'm like, all right, this is going to suck. I'm going to get the sloggy feet. The wind's going to be in my face. It's going to be horrible. It's going to take two days for those shoes to dry out. They're probably going to stink. You know, I'm going to get squishy feet. I'm going to be cold. This is going to be not fun at all. But if I do it, I have greater reserves. I do difficult things. And so it makes me stronger. It makes things easier overall. If I choose to do the thing I don't want to do, that's more difficult now. It actually leads to the easier path in life. Mm. And so we can take the road of convenience or we can take the road of excellence. Mm -hmm. Well, that's beautiful. I also want to just match that up to the Stoics point of view or to, if you would even call it like a Buddhist flow point of view, which is more about the relinquishing of suffering by changing your mindset towards those things, which would otherwise cause you suffering. And so that's another way of looking at it because yeah, the donut, all of the things that are like more of the lazy choices might be in flow with a certain mindset. But if you're able to level up or shift your mindset to know that doing that is creating some sort of coping mechanism unto itself. And if if you look beyond that to look at the the longer term prize, then you realize that's really what I want. That's why I'm going to get up. That's why I'm going to run. That's why I'm going to do this in the rain. And I actually enjoy it because I know that it's going to be more fulfilling as I'm doing it in doing something that's very challenging or, you know, what the prize is going to be at the end of the road. And I love how you brought up both the Stoics and, you know, Buddhism, because they are so related in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. in that 
you learn to love the process. Instead mm-hmm. of, you know, trying to work to get that BMW, mm-hmm. you fall in love with the process of working like a martial artist. Like, yeah. you know, you know, you carry water, chop wood. So you're in the moment and enjoying it. And what Jack LaLanne said years and years ago, the fitness guru was that if you learn to love a pepper as much as a chocolate bar, you're going to have a much better life. And so, you know, yeah, I occasionally have the donut and the splurge and all that, but I eat healthy and I enjoy it. I don't need the big house. You know, I've got my training hall down the basement. I've got enough room for stuff. I could go buy a sports car. Why do I need one? You know, so it's being content with what you have, or it's not being content, it's being happy, mm-hmm. but never content. I can improve. If I'm improving me, I'm not trying to get a bigger office or get a faster car or, you know, more. I'm trying to become more. And yeah. if you can do that, then you always have enough. Exactly. I'm so glad that you also brought that up too, because there is a difference between being content and being happy because being content could mean complacency. And that's not necessarily what this is about. It's really about being satisfied with what you have, where you are in the moment, enjoying all of those experiences and being eager for more, being looking forward to that improvement that you are continuously making in yourself each and every day. One of my friends put it as, I am enough. I'm good enough, mm-hmm. but I can always be better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think that's a good mantra to live by. Or, you know, as the Stockdale paradox says, embrace the bitter truth, but never give up hope. You know, assess who you are, understand where your shortfalls and your strengths and all that, and be ready to work on making yourself better. Not because of any external thing, any drive like that, but because working on yourself, if you're doing it, will give you something that you can always focus on. You can always make tiny improvements and you can see the results. And when you're doing that, you become more joyful Mm -hmm. overall. And that has all sorts of benefits psychologically, relationship-wise, translates into what we do for work, health-wise, it will extend your longevity. And so making yourself your task, your greatest masterpiece is going to have all sorts of wonderful results. And it becomes highly attractive. Other people with that growth-oriented mindset see you and will want to be around you. And you'll be around like-minded people that Mm -hmm. want to see the best in you, Mm -hmm. the best out of you. Mm -hmm. Yep. You'll find your tribe by law of attraction. Exactly. I actually want to go back to your early days because as you mentioned, when you were 10 years old, you had a near-death experience, an NDE. And no, it wasn't near-death. I was dead. You were dead. Okay. so I was what, dead, dead. You were dead. <laughs> Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. So being severely asthmatic, back in the 1970s, we didn't have the puffers that everyone does now. So basically you'd go to the doctor and you'd get adrenaline, go to the hospital, you'd be stuck in an oxygen tent and all this sort of stuff. So I was 10 years old. I was having an asthma attack. My mom brought me to Doc Murray. I'm lying there on the table and I was a scrawny, scrawny kid. I could barely breathe. I'm like, (laughs) and all of a sudden I could, you know, I didn't have that tightness, weightless. I'm floating on up. There's lots of light. I'm looking down, see my mom. She's freaking out, obviously. Doc Murray suddenly looks like an octopus. He's got all these extra arms. He's trying to do stuff. And I hear the big, deep voice like James Earl Jones, not yet time. Boom, all of a sudden I'm back down my body again. And, you know, I'm I'm able to get a little air in. And then they take me over to the hospital, put me in the oxygen tent. And from that day forward, I've been like this. So you attribute the way that you are to essentially that particular period of time, that particular instance. I've always been high energy, but from that point forward, it's been not even a conscious choice. It's been just who I am to not screw around, to not waste time, to maximize. I mean, my, I went and saw one of my friends this weekend and her boys, my nephews and all that. And literally she's like, you don't stop. Even when you're relaxing, you're running ultra marathons or you're helping other people out. It's like, that's just the way that I am. And so my life is filled with eustress as opposed to distress. 
So eustress is exciting. It re-energizes you. So I do a lot of very intense thinking and mental energy and writing for work. But then I balance it by going and doing something very hard physically, doing emotionally challenging stuff. So by this constant shifting of gears and essentially using different mindsets and skill sets and muscles, whether it's mental or physical, you know, it's allowing the other ones to rest. And so one of the things that I recommend to people is if you got a very physically intense job in your relaxation, do something very mentally intense or emotionally. If you got a very mentally intense job, like an attorney, you know, a scientist, things like that, that's when you go do something incredibly physical to offset it. And so it becomes almost like active meditation in a lot of ways and allows your subconscious to process what you have been working on and relax and recover. Mm. So once that situation had occurred, did you sense that there was any essence of like newly instilled purpose or something that you almost would consider like a dharma? Like you are here for a reason. It's not your time because, and this is what you are meant to accomplish, or this is what you're meant to do in order to fulfill out your time here on earth. Right. And you have to remember, I was 10 years old. So what 10 year old knows what they want to do with their life. Right. right. You know, I was put on this to serve others and to make other people better. I'm going to make a difference. My goal, people ask me what my goal with the book and the book actually is a subset of the bigger picture is that. I want to be able to reach and help impact a hundred million people this year, whether it's through podcasts like this, articles that I write, TV appearances, radio appearances, people actually get the book, you know, service speeches, training individuals. If I can reach a hundred million people and help improve their lives, that become little nodes that are then transmitting out to other people in their communities, in their families, in their businesses. And so if I can directly impact a hundred million we can probably reach a billion plus people and improve their lives. That's something worth working towards. That is an awesome BHAG, uh, BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Audacious goal. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, we are going through some unprecedented times right now. Well, it's just like the Antonine Plague back in, you know, the time of Marcus Aurelius. It's just like the (laughs) 1970s all over again in a lot of ways. So, you know what? We've been here. We've done that. Yet, I find that, interestingly enough, we still haven't really learned how to manage ourselves through some of these, you know, global situations, whether it be a pandemic of disease or whether it be a pandemic of racism or whether it be a pandemic of intolerance of any kind. What would you... People are still stupid. Unfortunately, we are still big, dumb animals in a lot of ways. We are naturally attracted to individuals like us because it is subconscious. It makes us feel more comfortable. And really, we need to remember that what genetically separates you from me is almost nothing. And so the anecdote to fear is exposure. If you got fear of spiders, you know, what do we need to do? We need to look at pictures of spiders and then be in the same room with a spider and get close to a spider and you know, not freak out. If you've got a fear of somebody who looks different, we need to have you communicate with them. We need to have you talk to them. We need you, them to understand we're all humans and we have more alike than what separates us. And maybe it's because I grew up in a community where we were all relatively not well off financially. So it didn't matter your skin color or your race or anything else. It, we were just all people. And, you know, my best friend was originally from Vietnam. I mean, her dad was a major in the South Vietnamese army. And so my sister, my favorite sister, who I talk to every single day, you know, and her dad loved me more than he loves her. And my mom always loved Ziem more than she loved me. And so that's just the way it is. That's my sister. Okay. Mm-hmm. And her kid brother is my brother. So it doesn't matter, you know, what color hair somebody has or how much melatonin's in their system or the shape of their eyes or you know if somebody's a buddhist and somebody's a catholic or what have you in the end we are still humans we are all brothers and sisters and cousins at worst and so deal with it open up learn from each other 
Yeah. And, and that's what my dharma is. It's the human beauty movement and bringing people together. And the thing that I always am pondering is the concept of the algorithm and the fact that, you know, there is this concept of in the end, it's always a two horse race. It's always us versus them. It's always black versus white. It's always good versus evil. It's always the tyranny and- of the or of the wars. And unfortunately, what happens with the, you know, the the power of the algorithm, it's like it's creating polarity, it creates a divide, and it creates a stance in which, like, we are always going to be right. No, we are always going to be right. And then the two are never going to agree. So how do we from a poetic, philosophical or physical (laughs) physics way, start thinking about the solution to bringing people together. So it's not a binary solution, which is how everybody looks at things. Mm -hmm. It's either one or zero. Okay. If you look, visible light is a spectrum going from 520 nanometers up to 700 ish. Okay. And there's shades. You can't tell where orange ends and red begins. Okay. So have this understanding and have this perspective and perception that, okay, we're just seeing in slightly different colors, but we're looking at the same phenomena. We're looking at these same things. Let's try and understand. And I reference the tyranny of the or as opposed to the beauty of the and. You know, we can be this and this. You know, we can have traditional values and allow people to be human beings and be themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So expanding our concept and remembering in the end that when the aliens come on down and invade like an independence day, guess what? It's us versus them. It's not you versus me or Or Republicans versus them. It's it's us against the universe or us on the same team to be able to make the world a better place because that, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right, that dichotomy is based upon zero-sum game mindset Mm -hmm. as opposed to having an abundance mentality and hey let's work together you've got some ideas i've got some ideas we're not going to agree on everything we're not going to disagree on everything we've got this venn diagram of overlap of concepts let's see what we can do together to then improve things because if you and i can sit down and swap some ideas and work together we can expand the pie from 100 to 120 and even if my share of it becomes slightly smaller i've got a slightly smaller share of a bigger portion and as such i'm still better off Mm -hmm. and there's that and then there's no longer participating in the social media and the Instagram and TikTok and say, oh, look at them. They're so perfect. They have, they've got no worries. I need to be just like them. And, you know, fueling all this anxiety and fear of missing out and trying to be like the Joneses since that's all external and instead focus internal, learn from other people, appreciate what they have, use them to inspire you, inspire. but not become jealous and hateful over it. And then just become a better version of you. And if more people focused on being the best version of them that they could be, we'd be in a much better place. Absolutely. It all starts from the individual. And that's why I believe in the power of touching individuals and letting them see their worth, letting them see their divinity from within so that there's less of a tendency for comparison and for resentment and for jealousy, because all of that, like the seeking of external validation, external validation is nice. Everybody likes a compliment, of course, but it's not that you, but if you feed off it, you need it. it. If that is your existence, Mm -hmm. then you become a a vampire. You talked about energy vampires that becomes a psychic vampire. That becomes ultimately the path to narcissism. And, you know, there is nothing good that comes out. That's an extractive sort of relationship as opposed to a creative symbiotic where we can make each other better instead of I need to draw from you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Joe, you've had such words of wisdom for us today. I'm so glad that you came on as a role models guest. Thank you for all your words. And here's to changing the lives of 100 million people this year for you. I am rooting for you. Jennifer, thank you. This has been an absolute blast. I learned a lot. I'm better for it. You made me laugh and smile. You improved my day. Be excellent (laughs) and grow today. Thank you so much. (laughs) 